0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Before we jump into today's fascinating topic, uh, we will uh, complete business from Tuesday's program. You'll recall we talked uh, politics heading into this election year. We talked with universe, Utah State University uh, political science professor Damon Can, and Steve had this response to several things that were said on that program. Uh, here is Steve's message. Cinema being de- demonized for trying to find balance. Perhaps I misheard today's Access Utah interview. Demonized, your guest says, "Hmm, Kirsten Cinema almost single-handedly tanked President Biden's agenda by standing against the Democrats and with Republicans." almost single-handedly because she was joined in her obstruction by Joe Manchin. But Senator Manchin at least has the excuse of representing a solidly red state. Senator Sinema also, again, resolutely standing with monolithic Republicans against Democrats, has ensured the undemocratic filibuster remains intact and the protections against voter suppression won't be enacted. Condemnation of Kirsten cinema is fairly deserved and is by no means demonization. I'm surprised to hear the professor call it such. Regarding Howard Dean, your guest apparently suffers a memory lapse, forgetting that the Dean screamed, dirty trick. Your listeners may remember it, even if today's guest doesn't. After a primary victory while standing in front of hundreds of joyful supporters, Governor Dean shouted jubilantly, in order to be heard above the noisy crowd. The audio from the rally was electronically manipulated to remove the underlining crowd noise in order to make Governor Dean sound maniacal, thus creating the so-called Dean scream. That manipulated audio was played over and over and over again on television and radio until Dean's political viability was destroyed. It wasn't the electorate's natural choice, Professor. It was deliberate and dishonest manipulation. Finally, Steve says, Furthermore, as to the Professor's claim that American presidential elections are in these times typically close, that too is dead wrong. Republicans lost the popular vote in six of the last seven elections. Six of the last seven elections. And there is no reason to believe that will change. In fact... It is GOP knowledge that the party cannot compete in the popular vote, which drives its many voter suppression projects. Finally, I must note that it's nonsense when the professor claims modern American elections are chosen by the choice of the people. Hard to know if such thoughts typify the wishful thinking of grade school civics, or whether today's Axis Utah guest is expressing uh, the false orthodoxies of Republican politics, presenting them as neutral observations of a political scientist. That is Steve. Thank you for that. Keep those comments coming on whatever subject to our email, upraxis at gmail.com, at gmail.com. Welcome now to Access Utah. Though it's unlikely that the threat of prosecution under international law will stop Russian President Vladimir Putin, University of Utah Adjunct Professor of Law David Schmendman says that Putin should be held accountable and that Prosecuting atrocities in Ukraine is an international obligation. We're going to talk about that on the program today. David Schwendeman is uh, served as a prosecutor in the US Department of Justice for more than 25 years. He was an international prosecutor in the Special Department for War Crimes of the State Prosecutor's Office in Bosnia and Herzegovina and the lead prosecutor for the EU Special Investigative Task Force overseeing the investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Kosovo. And he was chief prosecutor of the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office uh, in The Hague. He's currently adjunct professor of law at University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of uh, Law. Uh, Professor Spenderman, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's my
1: pleasure, Tom. Thank you for
0: having me on. Appreciate uh, appreciate you joining us on this very important subject. And I'll give this disclaimer, uh, I think people will realize, but uh, we're going to be talking about atrocities, potential war crimes, and so some of the discussion may be unsettling for, for some listeners. Um, so President Biden has called uh, Vladimir Putin a war criminal, at least on two occasions. Uh, Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, called Putin a war criminal, I believe there's been some action at the United Nations as well.
1: Yes, Um, in fact, uh, there's been quite a bit of action around the world on this subject. A lot of talk um, and a lot of things done, other than talk. Uh,
0: Let me uh, let me talk about how you define war crime and maybe get into that a little bit. so uh, let me just quote this uh, to, to, to tell people what we're talking about. So uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky uh, says, he asserts that civilians have been shot in the back of the head after being tortured. Uh, talks about some summary executions. Uh, civilians blown up with hang- grenades in their apartments, crushed to death by tanks while in cars. He asserts that women have been raped and killed in front of their children. People dismembered had their throats cut. Um, yes. You know, awful, awful things. Um, mm-hmm. I guess some people might say, uh, yeah, this is not the prevailing opinion, of course, but some people might say, well, you know, war is terrible. Uh, things yeah. are going to happen. Uh, th- yeah. That's that's not where we've come. We've come to uh, that there are things that are out of bounds in war, right? Yes, yes.
1: Um, look, war crimes are part of a body of law now referred to as international and humanitarian law. Um, War crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide are generally included in this body of what's referred to as international humanitarian law. War crimes are more specifically, now at least, violations of the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and the Protocols of 1977. They embody, to a great extent, the laws and customs of war, or what are sometimes called the Laws of Armed Conflict, or or LOAC. Um, everything that you've just mentioned is in fact covered by the Geneva Conventions and by what used to be referred to as the Law of Armed Conflict. Um, that all derives to a great extent, although there were laws about this sort of thing and rules that governed how fights we're in, and how we thought, going back even before the Lieber Code, which was in, in, implemented by President Lincoln in the Civil War. Uh, but the modern version of all of this really stems from the Nuremberg Charter, the Nuremberg Indictment, the Nuremberg Trials of the senior Nazi leadership in 1945 and 1946, the um. Statutes that govern the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, which dealt with the terrible war in Yugoslavia between 1992 and 1995, the statute that governed what went on in the Tribunal for Rwanda, those have all added to this corpus, this body of international humanitarian law. But war crimes are specifically there to structure how we can fight when we have to. And that's done for some very specific reasons. It's not a luxury or a distraction. It's not something that people might feel is a very liberal notion of, oh, well, we can control human behavior. It's not that at all. It's to try and prevent the kind of catastrophe and human moral injury that was done both to victims and to those who were fighting in wars like those fought in World War One, and World War Two, and like the things that were done after World War Two, leading up to now. Uh,
0: so I'm referring to some notes that, uh, for our listeners, to the notes that Professor Schwenderman sent me that I appreciate these notes, and uh, I'll be referring to these. But um, uh, so you note that, um, and I just noticed the introduction. Uh, you know, threat of prosecution of war crimes very unlikely to deter President Putin in any way, uh, but but as you say, it's still important to go ahead. Uh, you talk about moral outrage; it's a powerful motivator, N- not not sufficient, but but I guess necessary, right? And then um, yes. Uh, so, what if you could tell me, um, you you and you've as I noticed as well, you've been a, an investigator, prosecutor in Bosnia Herzegovina and uh, Kosovo. Uh, tell me about, uh, I hope I pronounced this correctly, Sonsky-Most.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, Sonsky-Most was one event, one situation that I dealt with as the chief of the Department for the Special Department for War Crimes in Boston, New a Governor. One of my responsibilities became the helping to locate and excavate mass graves. To identify the remains that were in the mass graves and preserve the forensic value, not only of those remains, but of the artifacts that were found together with the remains in the mass graves and around those areas. And also to help return the remains to the surviving family members if there were any, or to treat them with dignity by trying to give them a name. And that was done through DNA identification and other means of trying to, to prove that this mass of remains all were individually. Uh, one of the things I was asked to do as part of that responsibility was go to a, a um, makeshift morgue in a place called Sanskimos in the northern part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. I was taken there by people from the International Commission on Missing Persons because there were the remains of about 800 people in this warehouse, along with a number of items, large rooms full of items that were taken from mass graves, artifacts, uh, clothing, um, jewelry, wallets, just what was left um, when the people were dumped into these mass graves. And um, I was asked to help take responsibility for those 800 people and to make sure that the forensic value of all of that was preserved so that we could use it not only to find out who did it, but also to prosecute the people that were accountable or to hold them accountable to prosecute them for doing that. And one of the things that has stuck with me ever since, and I think I visited that morgue in 2008, so 14 years ago, one of the things that has stuck with me and will never be forgotten by me is being taken to the remains of what the forensic anthropologists were telling me were the remains of a 14, about a 14-year-old young woman uh, who'd had her throat cut, and what was left over her was on a sheet in, on the floor in the morgue. And it struck me that she was nameless, because everybody that was related to her, or might have been related to her, perished as well, and there were no living relatives, as far as anybody could tell, so there was no way to match her DNA with anyone that could give us a name. So it's sort of been something that stuck with me, that one of the responsibilities I have even now is to make sure that people know about her and about what happened to her, and that there are still people out there who are responsible for her death. They may be found, they may not be found, but they'll live forever with what they've done.
0: You say that you could you see still see it, still still smell it, in fact, mm-hmm. you know, the, this this yeah. scene. Yeah. Um that that's that's got a weigh on you you talk about that weight of obligation as a as a prosecutor uh-huh. in that in that case. Uh for I guess for the reasons that you were saying that there 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 should be accountability, right, for this young woman. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, I think mean, um, um, more than that, there needs to be the effort. Well, not only needs, I mean, it's an international obligation uh, under any number of conventions and under just common rules of decency. It's an international obligation, really, to try and find as much out about these people that were hurt, that um, were, were, and in Ukraine, the same thing, that are done so much damage to but also the people who did it <clears throat> and whether you're going to be able to get those people into a courtroom that is find personal jurisdiction over them so that they once that so that sometime they stand in the dock and are made to answer for what they did that's terribly important and means need to be found to do that and means exist to do that in some respects in this case in ukraine but the effort of doing what's necessary to put that all together, to preserve it, not only tells the story of the events, which is important, because that then helps eliminate false narratives about what had gone, what went on, but also puts things in the bank, so that when circumstances change, perhaps, in the future, uh, those all can be brought out. They can be used in a legitimate proceeding that produces legitimate outcomes to hold people that did this stuff accountable. It took, I mean, I was working in Bosnia-Herzegovina almost 10 years after the fighting stopped, and we were still building cases against people that had blended back into the population and were brought out by us and made to answer for their crimes. Um, That happened with senior leadership. In the Republika Srpska, um, Ratko Mladic and Radovan Karadzic, for example, it took years to finally get them into the courtroom. Um, Slobodan Milosevic was not brought to the ICTY until it became politically necessary for the Serbs to turn him over so he could be prosecuted. I'm not saying that will happen in Putin's case, because the power dynamics are so much different. Um, There will not likely be a victor and vanquished in Ukraine. There will not likely be an ending like in Germany that would permit the international community to force uh, Vladimir Putin and maybe Alexander Lukashenko from Belarus or anybody else that's involved, uh, force them into a tribunal where they'd have to answer for their aggression. But they can be made international outlaws by these investigations and by the efforts to,
0: to hold them accountable. Yeah, I'm reading the, just the headline from a uh, opinion piece in the New York Times by Thomas Friedman. How do we deal with a mm-hmm. superpower led by a war criminal? And that I guess we'll, as we go along, we'll yeah. have, have to deal with that. that. As you say, different power dynamic. So, uh, yeah, th- this is interesting. Um, not only justice, right, but mm-hmm. this is about getting the information out there and, and I guess, uh, quote-unquote, winning history, right, making sure that history is correct.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the important byproducts of investigating and prosecuting these kinds of crimes. Now, I'm not saying that um, you prosecute for history. Uh, I don't think you do that. Prosecutors would make a big mistake if they went into this sort of thing thinking, I'm going to make this, I'm going I'm to write the history of this event. Liability, accountability for these kinds of crimes under international law is individual liability. So it's people you prosecute, not nations, not groups, but people. So you have to go and identify the people that were doing these things at this time to these people and what they were doing, then violated one of the international humanitarian laws it was either a war crime or it was part of a crime against humanity or in a greater sense it was part of a genocide i don't prosecute russia i prosecute russians so um you build a history by prosecuting so many cases and so many people at certain levels that the narrative becomes clearer um, so that people can't go back later and say, oh, well, that really didn't happen. Um, it, it's all made up. There weren't 6 million Jews that were killed in the Holocaust. Um, that's just, uh, that's conflated, or conflated history. There really weren't people that were murdered in Treblinka. That's not the way it happened. In fact, the cases that have been prosecuted, some of which I oversaw, with regard to Srebrenica, have told the story, have told the history, have made it clear that there were people that set out to murder 8,000 plus men and boys in Srebrenica and did it for a purpose, and that is to eliminate the Muslim population in that part of the, in that part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So you're not going to, you're not going to compete with the facts that have been developed in those cases if you want to tell lies about it.
0: And the facts are important. I, I was thinking about the Holocaust, of course, when we were, you know, we all do as so we talk about these things. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to me that uh, you know uh, Holocaust deniers that I've uh, I've never encountered one person, but that I've read. Mm-hmm. Usually, don't say uh, never happened. They're usually saying uh, they're on the way to that. They're they're saying okay, it wasn't yeah. six million; it was three million. But but you can yeah. you know you first you have to minimize it, and then you can do away with it. And and so the yeah. facts are very important.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and one of the ways, one of the few ways that you can establish clear facts when it comes to this. Is to get them from the mouths of the people that experienced the event, and do it in a way that is um, is acceptably verifiable. When a courtroom is sometimes the way to do that. But um, like I, I mean, I've had probably hundreds of witnesses that I've put on in the trials that I was responsible for in Bosnia and Herzegovina you know, or oversaw those trials. And, um, wow, you get everything from people that are very clear on what happened to them to people that suffered so badly that they can't remember very much of what happened to them except the really important details. Uh, for example, those Russian soldiers, in example, in Ukraine, the Russian soldiers that went into Ukraine wouldn't have been personal... Uh, friends of, or wouldn't have been people that the people in Ukraine and Mariupol, for example, or Buccia, would have known. It's not like there's a murder committed by a neighbor. Uh, this is murders committed by unknown people for the most part. Um, and when people are in a situation where they're being mistreated, uh, beaten, tortured, um, where they're witnesses to murders, m- in my experience, most of those people are trying to survive. The last thing they're doing is trying to remember the names, or the or the look, or the face, or anything else about somebody who's doing it. Um, they will, if proper investigative and interrogation techniques are used, be able to give you information that will help you establish who those people were. But it's a process that is very difficult. It's very fraught with um, possibility of corruption, and I mean corruption by the narratives being somehow affected um, so that they don't they aren't completely believable or reliable. but there are rules, jurisprudence that's grown up in the tribunals that have dealt with these things to take all of that into account and to provide standards for weighing the credibility of the reliability of that evidence. And that's been a process, a process that's been developing over the last 20 years. So, you know, getting to the truth, um, the trials are one way of getting to the truth, and it's something that needs to be in the collection of the information, the collection of the evidence, the preservation of the interviews and, and recollections, has to be done now and i think it is being done now Uh, how thoroughly is another question
0: i want to take up that thread we'll talk about a lot more about this as well i want to take a brief break now uh we're talking with uh, david schwendeman uh he has been an international prosecutor uh in uh, bosnia-herzegovina and uh, kosovo um he has uh Oversee investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Kosovo's chief prosecutor at the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. Has a lot of experience in this area. We're talking about uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, potentially committed in Ukraine and uh, and what to do going forward. Um, David Schmidman currently uh, is an adjunct professor of law at University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. We'll have more following this break. (music) You're listening to Access Utah. Time, Tom Williams. We're talking about war crimes in Ukraine, and we're talking with David Schwendman, who is adjunct professor of law at University of Utah's S.J. Coney College of Law. He served as a prosecutor in the U.S. Department of Justice for more than 25 years, and... Most made to our discussion today, he was an international prosecutor in the Special Department for War Crimes of the State Prosecutor's Office in Bosnia and Herzegovina, lead prosecutor for the EU Special Investigative Task Force overseeing investigation of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Kosovo, and chief prosecutor of the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. So he has extensive experience in, in this area. Uh, before we get into um, preserving evidence, um, I want to talk about the... Uh, witnesses that you referenced coming to the trials. This could be years, this could be decades after, after atrocities were committed. But uh, you know, you you, you bring in um, uh, the potential committed uh, the person who committed the atrocities, and then witnesses get to confront them, I guess. And uh, so yeah. this must be must be important for for some of those witnesses, uh, some of those victims, to be able to confront that person in, in court.
1: Yeah, I. I, I, how they react to it um, varies considerably. Um, it varies based on how they retreated, what happened to them, uh, who they are, obviously, what they've been doing in their lives since the events occurred, uh, what they've been through, how they've established new lives, that sort of thing. But the one characteristic of a trial is that When the events occurred, when they happened, when they were done to these people that are witnesses, those people weren't in control. It was being done to them. They were being robbed of their dignity in so many different ways, beaten, tortured, raped, um, made to watch those sorts of things, made to watch loved ones murdered, maybe assaulted at the same time their loved ones were murdered and left for dead. I had one witness who was like that. Uh, In fact, too, I guess what happened when they came to the courtroom is that they were then in control. They were able to tell the story. They were able to look at the person who had done it if they chose to, or not look at uh, at them if they didn't want to, but they were in control. They were able then to be a person who was regaining some dignity, by saying to this person who was sitting in front of them, or in one case, six people that were sitting there, or 20 people in another case, say, you did this to me, this is how you did it, and I'm here to help hold you accountable for what you did to me and what you did to others. I had one witness, Fred Bahic, who was the only survivor of 50 who had been taken to a pit in a part of... To go in it. And he survived while the other forty nine were murdered, shot at the mouth of the pit and dumped in the hole. And and he escaped it. But he was the only person that could come and tell the story of what had happened. And I've kept in touch with him in in a way ever since. And that's what he told me after he testified. I I came here because I could be the one that told this story, and I could confront the person that actually had done some of this. One of the people that had done.
0: This. Yeah, that's by the way, that's 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 heavy work, right? As a prosecutor and investigator, I mean, you, you, not as heavy as yeah. the victims went through, but that's that's a lot to but to investigate this these kind of atrocities. Um, so uh, let's talk about evidence. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. now is the time. Uh, now is a prime yes. time. Even but difficulties in the fog of war. Uh, I, I get who 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 collects the evidence and what? Uh, how do you go about it?
1: Well, I mean that's a question that's being answered now in Ukraine. Um, the, the French, for example, the Center forensic team to Ukraine to help the Ukrainians collect evidence. Uh, there will be. Ukrainian teams that have already been formed by the prosecutor general, uh, she has already announced that they've opened cases, and they have the authority. It's happening on their territory. It's happening to their people. They have laws. They have courts. They have a prosecutor's office, prosecutor general's office that are functioning. So they have not only the opportunity, but the responsibility for collecting evidence, Um, The International Criminal Court, Who, though Ukraine is not a member of the International Criminal Court, neither is Russia, neither is Belarus, and neither is the U.S., for that matter. But Ukraine, in 2015, accepted as a non-party state the jurisdiction of the ICC for crimes against humanity and war crimes committed on Ukrainian soil Beginning in 2014, it goes back to the Crimea. So the International Criminal Court, Kareem Khan, the chief prosecutor, has responsibility and now has the authority because other states that are members of the ICC have made a referral to him. He has the authority and responsibility for investigating on the ground crimes against humanity and war crimes being committed. So I know he has people on the ground doing that. I know some of them. Um, There are, um, I'm sure, other agencies or non-governmental agencies that are collecting information. There is even uh, private open source um, people that are collecting information that a um, accountability project, Global Accountability Project in Syracuse just put together an open source report that was published yesterday, I think, on war crimes in Ukraine. So there's a million people collecting all this information, and in a time when uh, the ability to take digital imagery and send it around the world is so common and easy, even for people that are in the middle of an event, uh, there's a lot of stuff being generated. So the question now is how that's going to be coordinated, collected, preserved, verified, to ensure its reliability, and there are protocols that have been developed for doing that when it comes to digital imagery and an intelligence take, you know, who's managing what the intelligence agencies are able to provide and what they will provide uh, when the time comes. For example, captured communications that go up the chain of command for orders given to Russian units to do one thing or another. One of the critical pieces of evidence in Um, In Ratko Mladic's case in The Hague, that wasn't mine. It was done by somebody I know, Alan Teagher and some others. But one of the critical pieces of evidence was a captured communication between Ratko Mladic and his artillery uh, units on the ground near Sadieva, instructing them to shell a civilian area to terrorize the people in that area. A clear, clear evidence of a direct order to commit a war crime. And there will be a lot of that in this case. Um, One reason is the Russians are so inept at command and control communications, apparently, that they're stealing or taking cell phones from Ukrainians, using cell phones to communicate with one another, and actually communicating up the chain of command with open communications, uh, cell phones. All of that's being captured by ordinary folks that have the skill to do that. And it's being reported. I mean, Washington Post and The New York Times reported actually played translations of those communications. So all of that is going to be critical when it comes time to holding people accountable and more importantly, identifying who the people are and what exactly they did uh, during all of
0: this. So, uh, eventually, uh, specific people will be charged with war crimes, and perhaps crimes against humanity. Let's take war crimes first. Um, what uh, what are we talking about specifically there?
1: Oh, you're talking about um, mm-hmm. deliberate murder. You're talking about uh, beatings, torture. You're talking about rape. You're talking about indiscriminate shelling of civilian targets, deliberate shelling of hospitals, and... Uh, other civilian targets, deliberately trying to destroy the infrastructure uh, in a city like Mariupol to make it impossible for people to live and to force them to leave. So those are all war crimes. Um, Those are all great violations um, of the Geneva Conventions. So you're talking about those specifically, and you're talking about people being held accountable from the grunts who pull the trigger all the way to the generals who give the orders in the political leadership and make it possible for those things to occur. One not unique thing, but one thing that's becoming apparent in all that's happening in Ukraine, and given all of this in the context of Syria and Chechnya in particular and in Georgia and in Crimea, This is the Russians. This is Russian leadership. This is Putin, his accomplices, the generals who are following his direction, engaging in violations of war crimes and in crimes against humanity as a tactic and strategy of war. So these aren't just things that happen because discipline breaks down in a unit the US has had some of those problems in Afghanistan and Iraq for example and they were prosecuted by us as war crimes but this is a this is a strategy and tactic of violations of international humanitarian law uh, to gain a to gain military and political objectives and that um, that makes this it makes it very necessary for this to be dealt with by both the international community and Ukraine. Um, these are direct challenges to in the international rules based order that has existed and kept something of the peace since 1945.
0: Um, do you think there'll be a charge of genocide brought? Um did you see evidence there?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, because I've had experience with this. Genocide is, like, the major league crime. If you don't have genocide, you know, it's not as serious as it should be. Well, that's not true. Crimes against humanity are just as serious as genocide, uh, as are war crimes, particularly for the individuals that are hurt. Genocide is a crime committed against groups. Against um, against groups, um, it's to some extent an identity crime.
2: Um,
1: what you have in Ukraine, it, it appears, based on the patterns that are evolved or the emerging from the information on the ground, from the evidence that's being collected, is that <clears throat> Russia, through its actors on the ground. Putin driving are attempting to eliminate Ukrainians as a political unit, destroy their identity as Ukrainians. And that would be one of the things forbidden by the Genocide Convention. It's one of those things forbidden in the genocide, uh, the way genocide is defined as a crime. You have to have genocidal intent, you have to intend to destroy in a whole or in part. A group based on identity, political affiliation, um, gender, race—there are a couple of other categories—and you have to do that by means of murder, um, other crimes, that, and um, displacement, um, forcing people to leave, um, that sort of thing. And it appears to me, at least, that the evidence is mounting. That in fact, what Putin and his accomplices are trying to to do is to are doing is committing the crime of genocide. Now, that's the crime of genocide. When you're talking in political terms, it's not uncommon to have people, and and I admire President Biden having the courage to do it to talk about genocide in a more general political sense. And I think that's what. Um, Valdemar Zelensky has talked about as well, and, and others. Um, it is one of those ways of expressing moral outrage about what's going on. But the problem with doing that is that because of the genocide convention, which the U.S. finally ratified 30 years after it was adopted, uh, is that there are certain responsibilities. That follow from a declaration of genocide, it's generally referred to as responsibility to protect R2P. If you acknowledge that it's a genocide, you may have a responsibility to intervene and prevent it and stop or stop it if it's occurring. And I think mean, that's one of the reasons that the U.S has a policy position. You heard in Saki yesterday. Uh And you heard others talk about President Biden was expressing a moral position, a moral uh, more moral outrage, not expressing the u s position with regard to genocide. That still has to be determined. You heard them talk about that. I think one of the reasons for doing that is that there are consequences when the country is determined that it is a genocide, then you have some responsibility for getting involved, and they are not probably ready to get involved in any
0: greater way than they already are. Let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have our final segment uh, with David Schmendeman. Uh, he uh, is adjunct professor of law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law, and he has served as an international prosecutor in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo, uh, The Hague, and uh, we'll talk more about uh, war crimes in Ukraine following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have with us uh, David Schwendemann. He is adjunct professor of law, at University of Utah's SJ Quinney College of Law. He served as a prosecutor in the US Department of Justice for more than 25 years and he has been an international prosecutor. Uh, investigating, prosecuting war crimes in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo. Uh, he's uh, done work at The Hague um, and uh, so has expertise to talk about war crimes in Ukraine. That's our subject uh, today. We have about seven minutes left in this last uh, segment. I just want to read uh, complete from the notes that you sent me. This struck me, Professor Schwendeman, uh, talking about frustration, I think, so that some people will feel that... Uh, You're not going to bring every last uh, person uh, who committed war crimes to justice and uh, that you're racing against time. Let me just read this. This is Professor Schwenderman. Prosecutors tasked with investigating and prosecuting war crime uh, cases can only realistically work to get as many possible as efficiently and credibly as possible while funding and political will exist to permit it. You go on to say, I know from experience that both funding and political will will run out before the job is done. that that, that's a that's kind of a race for time I guess
1: yes yep Uh, it's just uh, you know it's just a fact of life Um, moral outrage right now is burning very bright and it should Uh, what's happening in Ukraine deserves moral outrage deserves as much as can be brought to it but you know we have short attention spans um, I mean, I've had a lot of experience in Afghanistan as well. I was the justice attaché there for, for four years, four, four years on the ground. I had a lot of friends, a lot of people that I worked with who were Afghans. And I lived through what went on in August um, last year, like every one of them, and was on the phone with them and was dealing with uh, trying to get them out and trying to get them into safety and safe haven. But, you know... Not many people are talking about Afghanistan any longer. <laughs> um, all of that has become sort of dim, and it's dim to some extent by what's going on in Ukraine. I think the longer this goes on, the more difficult it is, gonna, is going to be to sustain what's necessary to make holding people accountable for what went on uh, to account in any sort of criminal proceeding um, I, I hope that it will last for a long, long time, but geez, it becomes very difficult to get people in positions of political leadership to commit money, funds, personnel, and the kind of political will necessary to keep these things going for as long as they need to. And they can take a long, long time. I think a lot of prosecutions having to do with individuals responsible for Nazi crimes were not finished in Germany until, you know, the early 2000s. You're talking about a long-term commitment, and I think with what's going on here, they'll probably get to more sooner than is ordinary in these kinds of cases, but it's still going to take a while.
0: You're writing these notes, so just have a couple minutes left to perhaps end with this. Uh, you see, the expectation that international criminal norms, those, for example, that forbid war crimes, crimes against humanity, will be enforced. Those responsible for violating them will be held to account punished, if found guilty, is at least since Nuremberg becoming the norm. I guess you would say yes. that, that that's, a, that's a positive development.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, the fact that everybody is talking about these things as war crimes and is talking about Putin as a war criminal, you've got people like macron and and boris johnson talking about war crimes you got anthony blinken and and jake sullivan and and president biden talking about war criminals and crimes and president biden talking about putin as a genocide heir i mean that proves the point these you know it's now become expected that there will be accountability and that's a good thing uh when that translates into good political will support, financial support, otherwise, for these investigative efforts and prosecution efforts wherever and however that's going to be done, that's when we'll know that it's become the norm, not just becoming the norm, but has become the norm. I mean, huge amounts of money have been spent on the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia on what I was doing in Bosnia at the government, 200 million euro spent on what I was doing doing or asked to do in the Kosovo situation. So, you know, there's commitment there, and that makes what I said, I think, true.
0: Well, we uh, have reached the end of our uh, time, a very interesting, important discussion. We've been talking with uh, David Spendeman, who um, served as a prosecutor in the U.S. Department of Justice for more than 25 years. He was an international prosecutor, um, investigating, prosecuting uh, war crimes in uh, Bosnia Herzegovina, also Kosovo, served as chief prosecutor of the Kosovo Specialist Prosecutor's Office in The Hague. He's currently uh, adjunct professor of law at University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. Professor Swideman, uh, thank you so much for uh, for talking about this with us.
1: Tom, Tom, thank you, thank you for having me on. I wish it was a better story; it was less sad.
0: Uh, yeah, but but very important, very important to to confront it. Thank you so much. Um, and, uh, thanks everyone for listening and, uh, we'll go out as we always do on Thursdays with the Leo T and Skywatcher.
1: Sometimes when this place gets kind empty, some of the breath fades with the
2: light. It's Skywatcher Leo T here as we look up, look around and get a little bit lost in space. Looking up from the good planet Earth in the morning with your hot chai or whatever warms you into the dawn, the long strand of planets spanning east to southeast continues with Jupiter closest to the horizon, followed on the right by Venus, Mars and Saturn angling up into the sky almost equally spread apart from terra firma. And in the evening glow of light, Arcturus is climbing high in the east, equally bright capella is descending high in the northwest. They stand at about exactly the same height above your horizon at some moment, uh, around 9 p.m. and they're up for about an hour and a half. They're both big and relatively bright, but Capella consists of two yellow giant stars orbiting each other every 104 days. Pretty cool. And in other space sightings of the universe, the Hubble Space Telescope has been busy lately finding a new star in a galaxy we reported last year, or last week, I mean, a mere 13.5 billion years away and now confirming a giant comet According to NASA, images from the Hubble show the nucleus of the comet, which is the largest comet ever seen at least from Earth, at least in modern times with a big space telescope and by bipedal beans. This beauty stretches about 80 miles across and is about 50 times larger than the average comet core. David Jewett of UCLA says the comet is literally the tip of the iceberg for many thousands of comets that are too faint to be seen in the more distant parts of the solar system. This monster of a comet is currently rolling along about 22,000 miles an hour and has been falling toward the sun for about a million years. And in things swept under the rug department, and it's a big one, an object from outside of our solar system exploded over the Earth in 2014. The classified government report reveals a fireball that blazed over Papua New Guinea in 2014 was apparently a rock from another star system. That's uh, before Oumuamua and according to a recent memo released by the U.S. Space Command U.S. Space Command? We have a U.S. Space Command? When did that happen? Is this an episode of Buck Rogers in space? Uh, Anyway, the small meteor measuring just two feet across slammed into Earth's atmosphere on January 8, 2014 after traveling through space at more than 130,000 miles an hour. This is a speed that gives astronomers a strong clue because it far exceeds the average velocity of meteors that orbit in the solar system. This study says meteor speed along with the trajectory of its orbit showed that the object had originated far beyond our solar system possibly from the deep interior of a planetary system or a star in the thick disk of the Milky Way galaxy. You can see an artist's illustration of this as well as other photos, images, and sources from this report on the Skywatcher Facebook page. Check it out. And NASA has fired up the core of its Artemis I moon rocket in preparation for a possible June test flight of the rocket around the moon, sans humans, as NASA gets set for a moon mission with people on board. It's many skies, one culture, walks all over the sky from the Shim Shiyun tribe, Pacific Northwest coast. Back when the sky was completely dark, there was a chief with two sons. A younger son, one who walks all over the sky, and an older son, walking about early. The younger son was sad to see the sky always so dark, so he made a mask of wood and pitch, which was the sun, and lit it on fire. Each day he travels across the sky... At night, he sleeps below the horizon, and when he snores, sparks fly from the mask and make the stars. So keep your imagination flowing as we look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T. on UPR, with translator stations statewide and streaming live.